Um, our first scripture reading today comes from Second uh, Kings uh, 23, and I'll read the first 15 verses. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all of the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he disposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places of the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who had burnt incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kindron and burned it in the brook Kindron and beat it into dust and cast the dust of it onto the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests to the cities of Judah and defied the high, place, the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the left of the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Moloch. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was now in the precinct. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the king of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the mountain of corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nerbet, who made Israel descend, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. Our next scripture reading is from Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what is plain can be known for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal powers and divine natures, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For all they knew although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore God gave them up into the lust of their heart to impurities, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And now our scripture text, familiar Bible story, uh, Joshua 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city. Uh, once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear uh, seven trumpets of ram uh, horns before the ark. Uh, on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before them. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua has commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the altar of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continuously, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard were walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is written, uh, that is within it, shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the shout of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat so that every people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to do the men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all their relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, 
Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's house and all belonged to her, uh, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out to Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall lay the foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was with all the land. Okay. So, uh, certain events can redefine everything. Uh, After the events, uh, these type of events, history becomes divided into the time before and the time after. Uh, Think of the American Civil War. From then on, everything in American history becomes divided into before and after the Civil War. Uh, In many of our own lifetime, we've experienced uh, these major events. Uh, You know, the fall of communism. Uh, Many of us uh, who remember the 80s, that was a major one I remember. Uh, more recently, we can think of the financial crisis in 2008. We can certainly think of the of COVID in 2020. You know, we can think of uh, the wood and nickel opening for the first time in 2003. All of the, these events change the world. Now, however, when I say when I talk about world changing events, I bet for all of us, the first thing we probably jump to is 9/11. Uh, Of course, 9-11, when Islamic radicals crashed three passenger jets into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. After the attacks of 9-11, nothing would ever be the same. We talk about pre-9-11 and post-9-11 world. Now, one of the things that happened after 9-11 was 9-11 raised a lot of questions in the religious community. Because the terrorists were motivated to act by their interpretation of the Quran. And certainly we could find passages in the Quran that could be used to justify such actions. But the problem for us as Christians was we have these same problematic texts in our Christian tradition as well. Could not followers of Christianity commit similar atrocities and claim that they are simply trying to behave as faithful followers of God is a result of what they read in the scriptures. After all, isn't that what the terrorists involved in 9-11 did? Uh, because of this, a lot of energy was devoted to the study of violence in the Bible after 9-11. What do we do with these uh, embarrassing texts that seem to commend violence in the name of godly devotion? And it's a hard question. It's one that I struggle with alongside many other devoted Christians. A lot of these texts are at odds with the teachings of Jesus, who seems to welcome all to his table and preaches love of enemy. Uh, This is the Jesus who will not even condemn the people who are crucified, but instead asked his father for forgiveness. Nonviolence doesn't just seem to be a tactic or something that Jesus thinks is a pretty good idea, but it seems central to his mission as he challenges all the power structures of his day. And so once I decided to study Joshua, I knew that this problem, the problem of violence, was something that we were going to have to confront sooner or later. And to make things worse, uh, this is Resurrection Church, and we've kind of made it a point to not skip over passages that are inconvenient. Uh, We like to take things on and deal with them. So, you know, for example, we read verse 21 here. Then they devoted all of the city to destruction. 
both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, the text makes a a specific point to let us know it's not just uh, the army, it's not just the military, the combatants that are devoted to destruction, but women and young people and even the donkeys. I mean, it's bad enough that you have to kill all the people, but the donkeys too? What do they do wrong? So it's crazy, too, when you think about uh, how often how, how the story is taught in our tradition. You know, we, we frequently uh, teach it as a kid's story. Uh, in fact, you know, it has that high quality. It has a pretty high quality kid's song along with it. So, you know, you may remember in Sunday school it's sometimes singing the song at the appropriate moment. You know, all the kids falling to the ground, just like uh, the walls of Jericho fell. But of course, uh, that song usually stops there. We don't usually uh, have the kids act out the killing of everything that breathes, including the donkeys. But that kind of illustrates the problem. Because usually we just ignore the violence. And that's probably the most common way the church deals with this issue. Now, if we do try to acknowledge the violence, we have to explain it away. And one explanation people in the church are often drawn to to justify the violence is by saying something like, look, it's God's right to order the destruction of people because he is God. And the Canaanites were really bad people, so judgment is warranted in this case. However, there are two big problems with this approach. First, the Bible doesn't actually say that the Canaanites are that evil, or at least not any more evil than anyone else. It is true that Joshua and Deuteronomy view the Canaanite conquests as an extension of the Egyptian exodus. And there is some thought that these Canaanite cities were, like Jericho, may have actually been a really military outpost of Egypt. Uh, And while it's difficult to date the events of Joshua, it's possible that Canaan was uh, was basically being run by Egypt at this point. But it still doesn't explain everything. I mean, you have the violence against the children and the donkeys. So second, uh, the other problem with this is such thinking has been used throughout history to justify all sorts of atrocities. Um, It it doesn't really give an answer to the 9-11 problem that I presented. Islamic terrorists could use the same rationale. It seems we have to come up with something better than that if we are to be different. And I am not sure that I'm going to completely solve that problem today, but I do want to wrestle with it because I think we have to address this critical issue rather than ignore it. And it seems that this story of Jericho is probably the week to do it. So let's look to the text and see if we can try to make sense about what's going on in this chapter, because it's probably a little more complicated than what's on the surface. As we found all along when we studied Joshua, um, it's been deeply subversive and we found that there is more to it uh, than uh, what we find on face value. So the setting is this. Before the Israelites, okay, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River. They're standing in Canaan, the promised land, and they're facing their, fir- their, their first major obstacle uh, to settlement, the walled city of Jericho. Now, throughout scripture, particularly the Old Testament, cities are generally viewed negatively. Uh, so if you think about the first time, what's the first time a city makes an appearance in the Bible? Does anyone know? 
you can't really answer it. But, uh, I, I, but I'm sure some people know this. Uh, it's actually Cain. Cain is the person who built the first city. Uh, and the story goes that after the murder of Cain's brother Abel, Cain is exiled into the land of Nod. And though God promises to protect Cain from any vengeance that might be exacted on him in the future, Cain goes and he builds a city. And he names the city after his son as a way to continue his legacy. Now, here's something interesting about the Hebrew word for city. It actually includes this idea that it's guarded. And that could be meaning by a sentry or a wall. So, so the idea of a city includes this idea of, of defense. And so when we read about Cain building a city, what it's saying is that he is demonstrating that he's trying to provide for his own protection apart from that of God. So uh, as the story in Genesis goes on, uh, we are introduced to the founding of uh, several other cities. And they're basically uh, notorious cities. They're, they're cities that uh, become important as the story of uh, the Bible unfolds. Uh, Asher, Nineveh, Babylon, all kinds of bad places. And then you can also think about the story of Lot. Uh, you remember Lot is Abraham's nephew, and he chooses uh, unwisely to settle in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God ultimately destroys because of their wickedness. So Jericho is already, when it's being introduced, since it's a city, and particularly a walled city, it's something we're supposed to be suspicious of. And uh, like the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho are another boundary that's been introduced in Joshua. The Joshua is, a, is one of the big themes of Joshua is about boundaries. Now, one of the things uh, you'll notice in this chapter, and, you, and I'm sure you heard it as I read it, because it's very long, and it's really repetitive, but it is organized by this pattern. Uh, a command is issued, and later the fulfillment of that command is repeated. And it's often repeated word for word. For example, if you look at uh, verses 3 and 4, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for seven, six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. And then, you know, you keep reading and you get to uh, verses 13 and 14. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's, horn, ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continuously. And on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And that makes for very repetitive reading, but what it does do is emphasize that the victory at Jericho is a result of obedience. But not only that, though, it reminds us of something. So it should remind us to think back to chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua, because if you remember, those two chapters were also structured in the same way with this co command fulfillment pattern. In those chapters, the barrier was the Jordan River. Now, the barrier is the walls of Jericho. And notice also that one key feature of chapter 3 and 4 has reappeared. Uh, the priest and the Ark of Covenant are uh, featured prominently in the, this chapter. They are uh, central to both passages. And in fact, the walls falling down and the actual battle of Jericho really doesn't take up much room in chapter 6, it, it, there's really only two verses. Far more attention is given to these commands and their fulfillment. It's almost like the battle is not really the point of this chapter. Now, 
the reason I bring this this to your attention is because all of this should lead us to think of chapter 6 in the same way that we thought about chapter 3 and 4. And if you were there for that sermon, the big point that I made was that all of the, this, uh, these ideas about uh, the priest, the Ark of the Covenants, and the rituals, uh, the command fulfillment was meant to recall liturgy. Liturgy being like worship, okay? Liturgy is the performance of various rituals in a pattern during the act of worship. And what the point of that is, is to communicate something about God to the person participating in the ritual. And so we said chapter three and four really wasn't so much about getting from one side of the Jordan River to the other, but it was about teaching us about something about God through worship. So what I want to propose is that in a similar way, what we are supposed to learn from chapter six is not so much how to successfully attack a walled city using the power of horns and marching. What we have is not some sort of uh, propaganda for band geeks. Okay, I wish the Suttons were here because I was going to make a high quality Sutton joke here. Uh, but uh, it's not what's going on here. So what are we supposed to learn? Well, first, what we need to think about, we need to think about this as an, what an ancient Israelite would have heard when they thought about uh, this ritual. When they read this language or heard this language, what would they have heard? And probably the most striking feature of all this activity, uh, this repetitive activity that leads up to the walls of Jericho falling is the repetition of the number seven. The Israelites march around the city for seven days. Seven priests bear seven trumpets. On the seventh day, the Israelites march around the city seven times. It's on the seventh day that the walls of Jericho fell. I mean, like we're beaten over the head with this number seven. Uh, so when an Israelite encounters a ritual in which seven is repeated, uh, where is their mind led to? And the answer is, you would be instantly drawn to Leviticus chapter 25. And Leviticus chapter 25 is important because it describes the practice of Jubilee, okay? So if you're not familiar with Jubilee, Jubilee is a uh, year uh, that was uh, ordered, uh, was, a, was a celebration that was ordered on the 49th year, the seventh set of seven, and it was ordered by God. And, uh, and, and here's the crazy thing, okay? Uh, to, you know, you may be like a little skeptical, okay, sevens, but seven appear through all the Bible. How do we instantly get to Jubilee? Well, here's the thing. The Hebrew word for Jubilee is Yovel. Now, what does Yovel mean? It means ram's horn, okay? Because the year of Jubilee was announced by the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. Now, guess what word is used throughout Joshua 6 when describing horns? It's Yovel, the same word. So clearly what Joshua is doing here is making a connection with the year of Jubilee. So what is Jubilee about? Uh, every 49 years, the entire economic world of the Israelites would be reset. All debts would be written off. Slaves were freed and all the land that was not in a walled city was returned to its original owner. Jubilee was about freedom. It was a guarantee by God to the Israelite people that they would not ever be permanently imprisoned by the powers of money and greed. 
Okay, so we need to remember that point because it's going to be important as we tie everything together. Now, the other key concept we need to understand is introduced in verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, this idea of being devoted to destruction is what makes this book so problematic uh, because this comes up over and over again. Uh, This is the command uh, this devoted to destruction where we get that the Israelites were to devote to destruction the men and the women, the old and the young and the donkeys, right? So the first thing that you have to understand is that this language of total destruction is likely uh, what we would call hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. Anytime we read any account of a military encounter in the ancient Near East, it reads like this. It's very over-the-top language. You know, everything that breathes was destroyed. And we know that this language is an exaggeration because we often uh, know the other facts. Uh, One of the best examples of this in the ancient history is the Battle of Kadesh. It was a famous battle that was fought in 1275 BC between the Egyptians and the Hittites. And we have the Egyptian account of the battle. But according to the Egyptian account, the army totally waxed the Hittites. You know, nothing that breathed uh, survived. Everything was destroyed. However, we know that that battle was actually a draw. But uh, you would never know that from the account we have. So it seems like such language was very much at home in the ancient world. And it was more intended to focus as propaganda for the kings and rulers. Now, We know that this practice of exaggeration was part of the book of Joshua as well. So according to the book of Joshua, if you read the book of Joshua, it tells us that the Israelites took over all the land of Canaan. And we find out that that's actually not even close to being true when we read the book of Judges. Uh, You know, we're also told things like the Canaanites, uh, that, that, that every Canaanite in a particular area is wiped out. And then right after that, the Israelites are told, don't marry Canaanite women because they'll lead you to idolatry. Well, I mean, obviously there's a problem there because if there's Canaanite women left to marry, you didn't wipe out everyone. So maybe this means that not all the donkeys are killed, but it's still pretty awful what is going on in Jericho. I mean, it's an exaggeration, but, you know, it still sounds like ethnic cleansing or genocide, Right. So if we look at the phrase devoted to destruction, uh, it's actually from a Hebrew word, harem. And the trick is we don't actually know exactly what the word harem means. Uh, It seems to be a ritual word. Okay, it's a religious word in which something is transferred from the human realm. Okay, according to Leviticus 27, uh, a field can become harem. And it's not destroyed, it's just set aside from human use. You don't plan anything on it. It's devoted to God. So destruction is sometimes part of harem, but not always. I mean, like, for example, when we read this passage, notice in verse 19 and 24, metallic objects are harem, but they're not destroyed. They're brought to the treasury of the Lord. There's probably a practical reason for that. This is the Bronze Age. The Israelites didn't really have technology to melt down uh, uh, metal. But still, harem doesn't necessarily mean destruction. Now, 
The point of this is what I want to argue here is that harem is more of a theological religious concept than it is a military one. In fact, we uh, can look at this really interesting story in 2 Kings 23, or at least I think it's interesting, uh, that we, uh, to prove this. Okay, so that's the passage we read earlier. And here is the setting for the story. It's a great story. The high priest Hilkiah has rediscovered the book of the law that has been lost. Okay, it's probably, probably what he's discovered is Deuteronomy. So in other words, Israel didn't know about their scriptures because, you know, all the kings have been bad for a really long time. And uh, Hilkiah finds this copy of Deuteronomy. And when the king Josiah uh, has the book read to him, okay, uh, he's horrified because he realizes the Israelites have been like disobedient, like a lot. And so what happens in 2 Kings 23 uh, is an enactment of the harem as detailed in Deuteronomy 7.5. So Deuteronomy 7 includes this language about harem. And the reason we know, uh, and, and then, you know, you read that long passage that we read about the destruction of the Asherah and the Baal and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and it uses the same language uh, as Deuteronomy 7, okay? Uh, but notice that what is happening in 2 Kings 23 is not that like Israelites and their donkeys are all killed. It's the idols are uh, destroyed. The attack isn't against the Israelite people, it's against their idols. So here we have that Haram is being interpreted by Josiah, not about extermination, but about attacking idolatry. And this makes sense when we remember that what the Bible tells us, the big problem with the Canaanites is, is not that they were Canaanites and they were ethnically, you know, and, and terrible people and evil. Uh, they were idolaters. So in a minute, uh, I'm going to take all these points, okay, and I'm going to bring them together. But there's one more thing you need to understand as we wrestle with some of these issues. So the book of Joshua, okay, at least in the form we have today, was written probably much later than the events as records. Uh, Joshua is part of a larger work uh, that, uh, you know, people in the theological business call the Deuteronomistic History. And that includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And it was likely composed maybe in response to the rediscovery of the law that's recorded here in, uh, by, by King Josiah that's recorded in 2 Kings. Because we know this because the point of the Deuteronomic history seems to be to interpret Israel's history in light of the theology of Deuteronomy. Now, this is important because it gives us some context about the actual message being communicated by the events recorded in Joshua. Now, we've already talked about how subversive Joshua can be. It's not this simple, triumphalistic, militaristic, patriotic, surface narrative at almost every turn. Remember, we keep comparing this uh, to the uh, Bruce Springsteen born in the USA. You know, it sounds like on what the verses, the, the chorus sounds like, you know, this really rah-rah America go patriotic anthem. But when you hear the verses, it's actually not that way. I think Joshua is acting the same way. So if we think about Israel at the time of King Josiah, it's anything but a strong military power. 
Israel's a shadow of its former glory. It's greatly reduced its size. It's at the mercy of all the empires that surround it. And that context just help us understand something that has been going on since chapter 3. All the events since chapter 3 have involved ritual and liturgy. And I made a big deal about this. Central to all these stories has been, you know, the priests and the Ark of the Covenant and this command fulfillment pattern. The military component, which is what you would expect to be uh, the focus of in a story uh, where people are trying to conquer a territory, is almost absent. Weapons are seldom mentioned. In fact, so far, where we come across weapons, like two times. It's like the flint knives the uh, Israelites used to uh, circumcise themselves. And then the uh, sword drawn by the commander of the Lord's army, who uh, tells them that he's really not on their side. In other words, what Joshua has done is it's purposely reframed these stories of the conquest of Canaan uh, that were about warfare to one that's about liturgy and worship. And that means that what the book of Joshua is trying to do is not deliver a historical message, but a theological one. And here's the reason Joshua does this. It's precisely because when it reached the final, its final form, Israel had no land or wealth or military. But what Israel does have is a temple and priests and the worship of the one true God. So what Joshua is trying to get Israel to understand is that the way they defeat their enemies is through worship, not by wealth or armies. And that is what worship is where the true strength of Israel lies. And what they need to do is not so much exterminate people, but differentiate from their idolatrous practice. And so the harem is more a lesson about the need to crush the uh, ideology of Canaan so that Israel can worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. And remember, the big problem in the Bible, uh, when the Bible looks at, at history, the big problem is not so much about immorality, you know, people breaking God's rules, although that's how we usually simplify it. It's about idolatry in which people fail to worship the one true God who created the world. Uh, go back to Genesis. Humanity was created by God as God's stewards to rule over God's creation as his vassals. And instead what they do is they surrender their authority as God ordains rulers to the dark forces of creation who have only been too glad to usurp their position. Uh, and the result is that humanity is imprisoned to these dark forces that enslave them and lead to oppression and death. That's what the story of Adam and Eve is about. And the serpent, the serpent's a created thing. Adam and Eve were given authority over the created things. And what do they do? They listen to the serpent, let him usurp uh, their authority, and that leads to exile and death. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us in this passage for Romans. Humanity exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is the enemy, and it's the enemy because it is about control and bondage, and it ruins God's plan for his good creation. And rather than a life, it brings death, 
And rather than building community, it leads to exploitation and oppression. So if we understand Joshua in this way, the Battle of Jericho then becomes a story about freedom that comes from, uh, from ending idolatry. Harem is necessary to purge the world from the dark forces that imprison it. And that is why there's this connection with Jubilee, a festival that's about freedom from debt and enslavement. Okay, so, so, so I'm giving you the basics here. Now, I'm going to try to try to tie all of this together. And I think this is where this story gets really awesome, okay? Now, I kind of slipped a fact in quietly without comment earlier when I introduced this idea about Jubilee. You may have caught it. You may remember in the Leviticus practice that describes uh, Jubilee, the Leviticus passage in chapter 25, only houses that had been lost to debt in unwalled cities could be redeemed, okay? Houses in walled cities could not. And so by knocking down the walls of Jericho, we see again God breaking down another barrier, just as the Jordan River had been crossed both being accomplished through worship. However, knocking down the walls also means that now there is hope for the redemption of Jericho because without walls, now it can be redeemed. And we see that hope being realized. Joshua is telling us this story because what's the other major part of this passage? Rahab and her family being saved from destruction. Okay, Uh Again, we see that Joshua is a book where God breaks down boundaries and the result is freedom. And this is the subversive story that we read about in chapter two with Rahab. And that's God's message to us. The problem of creation is not that we do bad things. The problem of creation is that we have allowed ourselves to be be enslaved to the dark forces of creation that uses God's good creation in the forms of things like money and power and sex to imprison us. And that causes us to do bad things. And the result is we abandon our responsibility to rule the world justly and instead commit acts of oppression and injustice in order to serve our evil masters. And the result is the destruction of God's plan for his good world, the corruption of the people he created, and ultimately death. And the answer to this is knowledge of the true God uh, that results from worship. And that's what the story of Joshua is about. The story of Joshua and the story of the Old Testament as a whole is about a God who works toward freedom. By defeating those dark forces, just as he tears down the wall of Jericho and announces Jubilee. And all of these stories function to prefigure the ultimate salvation found in the gospel where Jesus takes on the dark forces of the world and frees us from their power. At the cross, all the dark forces of the world, represented by idolatry, unite to defeat cross using their ultimate weapon, death. And it's at the cross that Jesus shows that their power is impotent as Christ tears down the ultimate boundary by his resurrection to life. And it's this life that leads to ultimate freedom. And that's what we celebrate and acknowledge in worship because it frees us from our bondage to the dark forces and it allows us to be something we could never be before, fully human, so that we can again uh, resume our position as God's stewards, as God's vassals, 
God's just rulers, and we bring about the kind of world that God intended for a creation, a world of freedom from imprisonment to money and power and sex and all the other things, a world freed from oppression and exploitation, a world where flourishing is allowed and neighborliness and life. And that's what the story of uh, Jericho is ultimately about. All right, that's our uh, sermon for today. So questions and talk.